Hi, everyone. Welcome to Roll for Enterprise. And this week, we welcome a special guest, Clara Gutter. Claire is a service management trainer, consultant, and author. She's the director at ITSM Zone, which provides accredited learning in ITIL, DevOps, BRM, and various other things, and also at Scopism, publisher of the Siam Foundation and Professional Books, which we'll be discussing later. Uh, she's also been recognized three years running as one of the 50 most influential women in tech, according to Computer Weekly, and an HDI Top 25 thought leader, which sounds very impressive. <laughs> um, I know Claire from uh, various industry connections. I was actually on her uh, YouTube show, The ITSM Crowd, in a previous role. Uh, she's also the chief architect for VerySM. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you so much for inviting me. Welcome, Claire. Yeah, it's great to have you, Claire. Thank you. So why don't we start right from the beginning? There's a tendency for those of us in certain corners of the industry to assume that everyone knows about ITSM and ITIL and all of these things. Uh, but every now and then we're reminded that that's not necessarily the case. Um, so Claire, would you mind just setting out some ground rules for us? What's ITSM? Where does it come from? What does it mean today in 2020? I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I've been in IT service management, ITSM, for more than 20 years now. And if I'm honest, I still think my family have no idea what I do. Um, so it, it, it can be a tough one to explain. But if, if we take it back, so 20-ish years ago when I was starting working in IT and I was on the help desk and I was a change analyst and things like that, the only sort of guide that you had for how to work so how to run the business of IT was the ITIL books and print two for project management so back in the day that was ITIL version two um it's up to ITIL four now but that really covered mostly operations so it covered incident problem change availability capacity it was restricted to operations and then you had your development teams who were probably in another part of the building, never spoke to you, threw things over the wall at five o'clock on a Friday and then kind of went on holiday. This sounds very familiar. Yeah, I have no idea what that means. No idea what that means. Really. Yeah. <laughs> but we've we've moved on from there. <laughs> and I think what we've seen in the in the last kind of five to ten years particularly is an explosion in ways of working, first of all. So we've been talking about, you know, agile, DevOps, business relationship management. We've got lean IT. We've had green IT. There's there's an awful lot of things happen. So ITIL isn't the only game in town anymore. Because IT services have become much more mission critical to organizations, we've started to look at them more holistically as well. So... We have operations good practices, we have development good practices, and really now I define service management as everything that we wrap around technology in order to get it to do what we want it to do for the organization. So that's that's my personal definition, but that then encompasses agile, it encompasses DevOps, it encompasses ITIL, everything is, is just how do we work in order to make these amazing bits of kit and these amazing bits of software that we have, how do we make them do the things that we want them to do? How do we deliver a good user experience? And that's that's what service management is 
to me now. And I think one of the one of the problems that we we come up against in IT is we think about behavior and ways of working like it's software. And, and, you know, you can see this at the moment that organizations are moving from ITIL version three to ITIL four. And it's they're treating it like an upgrade. How do we upgrade our people? And we need to sort of move away from that kind of thinking and just look at what do we want our IT services to do? How do we make that happen? And then if getting to that point includes using Agile DevOps, ITIL or something that we make up ourselves inside the organization, that's completely fine as long as we're getting to where we need to be. I love that. And there was a tweet you put out earlier. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, This will shock no one in ITSM, but having attended a lot of virtual events, my conclusion is it's not about the technology, it's about the people. Organization, communication, community, what really matter. I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly, I mean, some people have this negative perception because they still think back to the early days of ITIL when it really was an us versus them uh, type of approach, especially as a recovering mm-hmm. sysadmin. There was very much a perception of, I don't want to be told what to do by those people on the service desk with their tickets. As you say, it's really not the case anymore. But there has been also a strain of, of people who focus more on the process and on the names of things than on the ultimate goal. Why are we even doing this? Yes. It's been very unfortunate. No, you you always get into um, a space where people get uh, really focused onto theory and lose track of the operational uh, reality. And there's a there's a balance between the two, right? And I think organizations still struggle between that um, uh, that balance. And and I assume everybody sees it in in their organizations and organizations that they visit. Uh, I, I would assume. Yeah, and I, th- I think change management is a really good example because if you talk to a lot of people in the DevOps community, their perception of ITIL change management is nothing can happen without convening a change advisory board and that can only happen every two weeks and you know there's forms to fill in and stamps to get stamped in order to to get anything done whereas they want to work at pace. But again that that is like you say how some organizations have adopted change management if you sort of take it back to first principles and say, what does change management do? It allows change to happen in a safe way. So whether that's through filling in forms and convening a change advisory board, or it's using, you know, continuous deployment and having a fully automated pipeline, as long as it's working and it's auditable, really doesn't matter. Um, and it's it's kind of it's getting away from, I guess, a little bit of tribalism that we sometimes see as well. Um, and, and just kind of looking and saying, what is it we're actually trying to achieve here? And then how do we get this done in the most efficient and effective way? I, I absolutely agree. And I always refer to the guardrails, right? I think, mm. you know, different companies are comfortable with different levels of risk and, and some will run a looser change process where some will run it tighter. But I think that all depends on the impact and, and risk that organizations are, are willing to do. So it's not like a one size fits all type of deal where I think so many people look at ITIL, ITSM and and think of, oh, oh my Lord, the overhead, right? I, you know, there's still there's still this this <laughs> yes. kind of uh, yeah perception about it. I would say. Yeah, and I mean, I was I was a change manager at the highways agency in the UK, sort of fifteen sixteen years ago, and 
we needed change advisory boards at that point because we didn't have a lot of the automation and we didn't even have people who were willing to talk to each other. So for us at that that point in time, sitting people around the table discussing things was the only real way that we had to surface any issues and to make sure that everybody had an idea what was going on. Whereas if I was doing the same job now, of course I would do it completely differently. And I think this this is one of the things that perhaps organisations don't do is is just look at what they're doing and say, do we still need to do that? Um, Bridget Crum, who, who is an amazing DevOpsy type person, she she said that process is scar tissue that organisations build up over time. Yes, I, I love that quote from Bridget. Oh, I've used it many times. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's come out of 2020 is this realisation that actually a lot of the things that we used to do, we don't have to do. We can change at speed. We can get rid of quite a lot of the things that we thought we had to do. And and for me, there's there's a lot of organisations now have an opportunity to reassess all of their ways of working and say, what did we used to do that we, is, is worth keeping? So, Claire, I, I would ask one thing. I mean, if we look at the IT environments today, I mean, it's it's really changed over the past years, right? I mean, we see like this explosion of cloud, mm-hmm. you know, de- DevOps wasn't even a, a term, you know, when I started my IT career. You see low-code, no-code, so organizations have really fragmented in the terms of like how they're doing IT. How's ITSM, mm-hmm. like, how has ITIL kind of adopted? How are organizations adopting? Because it does feel like it's getting a little more yeah, loosey-goosey. I mean, even some items like CMDBs are not as relevant anymore or hard to have a complete picture. I mean, can you share a bit about what you're seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that's changed is what falls within the scope of service management. And if we think about this as a supply chain, we have two different types of organizations within that supply chain. So you have the organizations that are providing cloud services and they absolutely still need those service management principles because things like security, capacity, availability, support are absolutely essential for them. But then for the organizations that are procuring cloud services, they need a different set of service management skills and things like supplier management, contract management, relationship management, governance, they become much more important. So some of the traditional things like, you know, the availability and the monitoring and the capacity, they're not relevant anymore. Um, And a a kind of a good example of this was one of the organisations that I was working with got a massive AWS bill and they didn't know where it had come from. And they kind of had a look and figured out that they'd given the developers as much capacity as they wanted to spin up new environments whenever they needed them to test things out. But nobody was then tracking to say, when do we turn this off? Mm. And that was what was creating that issue, which is, you know, old school service management was trying to keep things as small as possible. But now we're almost at the other end and thinking, well, yes, we can have as much as we want, but how do we then track that we're still using it so there's been kind of changes in skill sets and the other thing that's happened is our supply chains have become so much more complex my training business is is a tiny organization but everything's outsourced so the number of different service providers software companies um, that we work with in order just 
to deliver a fairly simple set of e-learning is is phenomenal. And and what you see there that's developed from a service management perspective is service integration and management, which is SIAM. And what SIAM does is it looks at if you've got 30, 40, 50 suppliers as part of your IT supply network, how do you encourage them all to work together? How do you build a culture of collaboration between them? Because I've been in the situation many times in my career, and I suspect you will have as well, where something's gone wrong and you talk to the application provider and the application provider goes, no, no, it's not the application, must be the network. So you talk to the network provider and the network provider says, no, no, nothing wrong here, must be the database. So you talk to the database provider. We say it's the DNS. (laughs) (laughs) And you kind of, you're bouncing around. All these companies care about is, can I deflect the blame from me because I don't want to miss my targets? I don't want any penalties. And what Siam's doing is trying to get them all to pull together and focus on the big picture, which is ultimately that, you know, you might meet your, your contractual targets this month, but your customer's actually really pissed off. And I think what we see, like, from uh, the ground floor of organizations, I think everybody's struggling with Siam, whether they call it that, whether they call it, like, the the multi-vendor landscape that they've built, it takes on these very different names. But you're right, the environments have gotten so complex that there's so many moving pieces that when an incident, a major incident, or or something substantial happens in your environment, no one knows where to go. And there's this real worry in organizations where, okay, who's holding this all together? Who has the piece? And either you have this, the one guru who sits in the corner with his uh, swing line stapler who has all the answers, (laughs) right? Or, or, you know, you you, got to organize it. And I think companies are looking at organizing it, but it, you know, I feel Siam, it's been talked a lot about, but I, for one, don't see a lot of the adoption, I would say. I, I don't know if that's the same or if it's starting to change or it's where I sit, to be honest. This is very much a geographical thing. Um, so Scopism, which is one of the companies that I founded, we we wrote the book for Siam. Um, and if you want to learn a little bit more about Siam, it's there as a free download on the Scopism website. So you can just visit that and grab a copy. But what we see in terms of the countries that engage with us is Siam is quite mature, actually, in the UK, Europe, Australia and Japan. And it's barely talked about in the USA and Canada. And it's only very, very recently that we're starting to see a little bit of of take up in the US. Because it's a question we've asked. We're thinking... U.S. companies still have suppliers, <laughs> you know, that they must be experiencing the same problems. Um, but there's actually a couple of U.S. government contracts um, where the RFP has gone out and it specifically mentions Siam now. Um, so I'm involved in one of those projects at the moment, which I can't kind of share any information, unfortunately, but hopefully over the next couple of years, what you'll start to see is is some take up in the US and actual some case studies as well, which are always good to have. One thing the government adoption is very good for is precisely formalising these types of requirements. That's part of the origin story of ITIL itself, at least the popularly understood one. Yeah. From a, a Siam piece, it's also like a different approach geographically. And it comes down to the technology. What I see a lot is you know, we trust, but 
check on our vendors. So we all, <laughs> and it's true because I see it in like geographical differences. Like when you talk to a European and talk to an American or somebody on, in the Americas, like we want that underlying access. We want to understand how like the electricity flows in the house, how the plumbing is hooked up and, and everything works. And we want to have the ability to step in if we need to. Whereas I think in Europe, it feels a bit different where hey, I have a contract, this is what you're going to do for me. And yet you're going to do it. It really is a different approach. Do you see it the same way or, or not so quite? And, and maybe that's why kind of Siam is at a different pace uh, geographically one to the other. So you already have kind of a more collaborative relationship with the suppliers that you work with because we're asking for the access and getting it that could possibly be part of it i mean we've been doing through scopism we've been doing a a global siam survey for the last three years and one of the things that we've been tracking is the reasons why people move to a siam model and initially the, the the feedback pointed quite strongly to people wanting more control of suppliers when that's not what you get necessarily in a SIAM environment because you bring in a service integrator whose job is to work with all of your suppliers and encourage a culture of of collaboration and innovation. But we have seen in, in the most recent survey, it is less about control and it is more about getting more value. Um, I worked on, we had a big... IT program in our national health service in the UK and I worked on that and that was that was all about having some of the big players sat around the table you know Fujitsu, Accenture, CSC and building that culture of collaboration between them and it 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 was challenging you know it's 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 difficult when everybody wants to keep their commercial cards quite close to the chest um, but if you can get these organizations to work together, you, you do see real benefits and you do see an improvement. So I think if 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 the sort of the culture in the US is is to have that much closer engagement with your suppliers, it, that might be part of the reason why Siam isn't so well known yet. But the, the, the key thing with Siam is it's 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 not just the customer supplier relationship, it's the supplier supplier relationship. And how is everybody in your supply chain working together? I've been a little bit out of the loop on Siam. So I have a very high level idea of the concepts, but not the, the practical application. Do you think this is something that remains at the methodology level? Or do you think uh, this will also manifest at a system integration level where you grant some obviously very controlled role-based access to each other's systems? Uh, where do you think that goes in the medium to long term? This is something that probably I would draw on the experience I had with some of the, the Japanese organizations that are adopting SIAM. Because what, what we're seeing um, in the, the Japanese market is a lot of the old system integrating companies see SIAM as the next level of evolution for them and the services that they provide. So I think that the old concept of, of kind of systems integrators will evolve towards service integrators, but then the challenge is, is still going to be how, how do we then encourage these organizations to work together and how do we build a layer of automation underneath that? And in, in the Scion body of knowledge, we've got some content that talks about 
the different approaches to tooling, for example, that you can have in a SIAM environment because some organisations will buy a tool and force all of their suppliers to use it. Other organisations are looking at more kind of custom integration solutions. And I've just, funnily enough, I've just come off a, a SIAM webinar and somebody asked a question about what's this, what's this got to do with IPAAS? So I did a quick Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have to share with us now because we're just as confused. Yeah. IPA is a service. Is that when I ask for a pint of IPA? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that idea. <laughs> so it's um it's an integration platform as a service, um, which mm. I, I've, I've got to be honest, it, it's new to me, but there's a gap in an article about it. So it must be something. Uh, but that that's something I'm going to have to read into. But I, I think the... The assumption has to be none of this is going away. We will all work with more and more service providers. We will all need more and more automation and that the, the industry will respond in providing both the tools and the standards to support that. Right. The reason I was asking, partly is personal work-related obsession, thinking about common data formats and exchanges, <laughs> but partly it's also a theme that we've discussed on the podcast before about these new approaches, like basically the inheritors of runbook automation, and these days it's called robotic process automation or various mm-hmm. variations on that term. These are all things which start out with people talking to people people and they end at some point with machines talking to machines yeah where do you think we are on that on that journey when we were writing the body of knowledge um that the research that we did showed that there was a huge variety in where people were on that particular journey so some of them were doing the the old sort of swivel chair approach where you take the data from one system and then turn your chair around and type it into another one which obviously isn't ideal um, some Siam models work very hard to develop a common data dictionary, which helps them to make sure that everybody is literally speaking the same language. Um, and others have got very sophisticated integration solutions. So it does it does depend very much on individual Siam um, Siam models. But that there are some kind of sophisticated tools out there, and there's companies like Farmi and OneIO that that are very much focused in the integration space. And how do we get other tools talking to other tools while still protecting people's data? It sounds like we're still though at that experimentation phase. Maybe in terms of instant and change management, we're looking ten years back. So <laughs> a <bit> more. <laughs> Could be more. It could be more than that. Yeah. Where are companies uh, struggling, Claire, in terms of like their adoption and and furthering this? It's not just Siam, right? So where where are we in the in the cycle of maturity for most companies? So service management in general, or Siam specifically? Service management in general. <laughs> well, I was talking to somebody. She's an old colleague of mine who works in the public sector in the UK now, and she's a head of service management, and she kind of rung me up to have a chat because she was having a real crisis of confidence about what value are we actually bringing in service <laughs> management these days you know we've we, everybody's off agiling and devopsing and we've got product teams who are owning these things from start to finish so what what value are we delivering and I think it's that's fairly common across organizations is they're desperately trying to reinvent themselves and understand how all of these pieces fit together and and how 
how does the role of service management evolve? And one of the interesting case studies that I've seen quite recently is about service management having almost a more centralized and governance role. So the ability to have all of your product teams, to use Agile, to have a, a real sort of DevOpsy culture. But who's in the middle looking at things like security governance, scalability, integration across all of those teams? Who's doing the kind of the, the, the basics in terms of support? Who's doing all of the, the monitoring and the reporting across the organization? So there's still, to me, very much a role for service management. But I think some some organizations now have become almost a little bit sort of schizophrenic in their approach to IT. They're desperately trying to do too many things. And, and I spoke to an organization recently who was saying that they've got their agile development teams who are working on a backlog. And then they've got the problem management team in service management who are keeping the known error database. And there's a lot of duplication across the two stores of information, but they're not talking to each other. So you're getting redundant activities happening because there's no joined up way of working. Everyone is looking at these startups and they don't have any of this in place. Mm-hmm. They're looking to model these startups. So in that scenario, is the overhead a burden where they are right now? I mean, should they be modeling these startups that don't have any of this? I mean, what, what are your thoughts there? I think you've got to gradually develop what you need so that there's organizations doing quite old school service management who probably have more redundancy, more bureaucracy than they need. But I presented last year at a a DevOps meetup that was local to me and there was somebody there from a startup and I was was saying service management words that I foolishly assumed everybody knew, kind of forgetting that I was in my little service management bubble. But I was talking about the service desk um, and, and this lady from a startup put a hand up and said, what's a service desk? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's pretty much a help desk, but deals with requests and, and all the rest of it. And she said, oh, do you know, we could really do with one of those because they, they were still at the stage where any call went to any developer and that's fine. But you reach a point where it's interrupting the work or it's diverting a high value person away from a low value task that could be done somewhere else in the organization. So it's for startups, they need the very basics, but as they grow, as their tasks become, I guess, more, more functional, they become more functionally separated within the organization. They will need elements of this. And I can, I can look at my own company as, as an example here because when I started ITSM Zone, there were two of us and we were writing e-learning, we were answering emails, we were building the website, we were doing everything. And we checked the emails kind of last thing at night when we went to bed and we checked the emails first thing in the morning. And we were pretty exhausted, to be honest. But both of us at that time could do literally anything in the company. And if, if one of us had left, the other one could have could have carried on doing everything. But as the company grew, we found we needed a support function because we literally couldn't do all of those activities anymore. 
and then we needed a marketing function and then we needed a business development function and then we actually needed a full-time developer so I think as a startup you can be incredibly lean but that model is not sustainable if your organization is growing and you know I've I've reached a point now where I am fairly clueless about a lot of the operational tasks that I used to be able to do you know I used to order dozens of exam vouchers every day and now I wouldn't even know how to log on to the system to order an exam voucher but that's that's just a a a sign of the level of maturity that we have now as an organization I was going to say it's a sign of success kind of the flip side of that (laughs) that Bridget quote from earlier at the beginning you can hold it all in your head but if you're successful eventually you have to find another stratum to run the organizational chart on that is larger than what lives between your ears This has been a fascinating conversation. And even for me, I thought I was pretty up on ITSM state of the art. It's opened a a few interesting avenues to follow up on. So I hope it's done the same for our listeners. We threw the technology guys a real curveball there. That's uh, that's great. great. (laughs) Yes. I take this as a notch, as a notch. Yeah, yeah. If I can just mention one more thing, the evolution of service management led to a project that I was involved in a couple of years ago, which is Verism that you mentioned in the introduction, Dominic, which was trying to describe service management for the digital age. So trying to take an enterprise approach to service management for digital products and services. And I I would absolutely recommend people, if, if you're struggling with kind of trying to integrate Agile and DevOps and ITIL and integrate that into your business processes and your financial planning, I would recommend having having a look into Verism because that was a way to kind of answer quite a lot of those questions. So definitely worth doing some some reading up there as well. You can find all of that good stuff at uh, Claire's website, itsm.zone. Uh, it's one of those uh, funky uh, non.com <laughs> domain names, which always helps to make them more memorable, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire, for taking the time. Uh, It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. And as I say, provided me personally with lots of insights. Listeners can find more from Claire on Twitter at Claire Agutta. And I'll also put links to all of her various other presences in the show notes. Thank you, Claire. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Claire. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much. And for us, you can follow the show on Twitter at Roll for Enterprise or on our LinkedIn page. By all means, subscribe in your favorite podcast player and do send us suggestions for future guests that you might want to hear from. Thanks. I'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.